Well, I direct your attention to 2 Peter chapter 1 this morning. Second Peter chapter 1. And to set the portion of Scripture that I want us to consider in our time together this morning, in its surrounding context, I want to briefly review what we examined last week from verses 1 through 4. In the opening greeting of Peter's letter, we find among the first four verses a detailed description of what faith is and what faith leads to in the life of a genuine believer. If you were here last week, you will recall that the first truth that Peter emphasizes within his salutation is the reality that true faith in God is obtained and not earned. Peter says there in verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us. So in other words, what Peter is saying is that the faith he and the other apostles have is the same faith the recipients of his letter have come to receive which is the only true faith that saves, and the only true faith that saves is a free gift of God offered solely through His sovereign grace. So contrary to what most religions teach, becoming a Christian is not about being good and doing good. For the Bible says there is none good. There is none righteous, no, not one. All of our righteousnesses before God are as filthy rags, which means that we do not have the ability to make ourselves righteous before God. Nevertheless, the Bible repetitively declares that God, who is rich in mercy, God, who is rich in love towards us, offers guilty sinners the free gift of faith, if they will sincerely repent of their sin and earnestly call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Nowhere in the Bible does God require that we pray a certain amount of prayers to atone for our sins. Nowhere in the Bible does God command that we do certain works to be received by God. The only way anyone can be united with God is through faith and faith alone. This is point number one. True faith is obtained and not earned. And then connected with this first truth is the second truth. The second truth that is emphasized by Peter here in verse 1 is the reality that true faith in God is in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Notice it. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So what is true saving faith according to the Bible? True faith in God involves believing that Jesus Christ is God, the righteous one. True faith in God involves believing that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, the only exclusive way to the Father. True faith in God involves believing that Jesus Christ became sin for us who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. True faith in God involves believing that there is only one mediator between holy God and sinful man, and that mediator is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead three days after his death. So what is true faith? Peter tells us that true faith is exclusively in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then the third truth that is emphasized by Peter regarding the nature of faith is the certainty that true faith in God is brought about 
through Christ's divine power. Verses 2 and 3. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like precious faith through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. So Peter is teaching us here that true faith is nothing short of a divine miracle. Just as Jesus caused the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the lame to walk, and the dead to live again. So true faith in Christ involves God giving us a new heart, a new nature, and a new life by the same power. We sing about the mighty power of God. I sing the mighty power of God. And as it pertains to the gospel, as it pertains to having faith in God, we recognize that only God through His divine power can make dead men live. Only the power of the gospel can cause spiritually blind men to see. Only the power of true faith within the heart can cause someone to want to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. This is true faith. True faith is obtained, not earned. True faith is in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. True faith is brought about by God through Christ's divine power. And this is Peter's explanation regarding what true faith is. And then turning to verses 3 and 4 in the second portion of Peter's gospel-focused greeting, we find a clear explanation regarding what true faith in God leads to in the life of a genuine believer. So, we see the nature of faith, what true faith is. Now Peter is going to tie within that what true faith does, where it leads to when somebody receives such faith. And beginning in verse 3, Peter makes it clear that true faith in God always leads to an intimate knowledge of Christ. Notice what he says. He says... According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Through the knowledge of Christ. Where does true faith lead? It leads to knowing who Christ really is. Before you became a Christian, Christ was just some mythical figure. Before you came to Christ in salvation, Jesus was just a leader among many religious leaders. Jesus was just a cuss word that you used to blaspheme his name. But when you come to faith in Christ, when the Good Shepherd calls you to follow him, when you are shown to be one of his sheep, you know him. Saul of Tarsus didn't know the resurrected Christ. Oh, he knew of Christ, but he didn't know him intimately and personally until Christ humbled him and changed his heart and gave him faith to believe. So Peter's teaching us here that true faith in God always leads to an intimate knowledge of Christ. And such a knowledge is not merely a theological knowledge that rests in the head, but a warm, loving, experiential knowledge that abides in the heart. So what does true faith in God lead to? Peter tells us that it leads to a personal relationship with Christ. It leads to Christ becoming our closest friend. 
Our personal Savior, our guiding shepherd, true faith in God leads us to love, worship, and honor the one who has first loved us. Continuing on, Peter then states that connected with an intimate knowledge of Christ, true faith always leads to a personal treasuring of God's Word. Keep in mind that God's Word is all about Christ. According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us believers, God's sheep, Christ's bride, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. And where are those promises found? In the written, revealed Word of God. And listen, by such great and precious promises, God's people live. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God that proceeds out of his mouth. You see, in God's word are God's promises, and by such promises, God's people are encouraged. So when somebody genuinely believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, when somebody actually becomes born again by the power of the Spirit, God's word will become more precious than silver, more costly than gold. God's word will become a lamp unto their feet and a light unto their path. When somebody hears the voice of Christ call them to faith, they will follow him through the revelation of his written word. That's what Peter is saying. There's a new relationship with the word of God, those who come to faith in Christ. And then finally, in verse number four, Peter would have us to recognize that true faith in God always leads to a distinct separation from the world. Notice it. Peter says, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped, past tense, the corruption that is in the world through lust. So how do we know that God has given us true faith? How can we recognize whether someone who professes to have faith in God is truly one with Christ? Well, Peter says if they've truly been reconciled to God, there will be a recognizable turning from the world to God in which old things pass away and behold, all things become new. If someone has true faith in God... And notice my emphasis of true faith versus counterfeit faith. True biblical faith. If somebody has true biblical faith in God, God will give a growing distaste for the sinful pleasures of this life. Listen to what Paul says to those in Corinth. Paul says, regarding those who used to be fornicators, adulterers, abusers, drunkards, homosexuals, and such were, past tense, some of you, speaking to the church, but now you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. You see, the gospel is a calling out of the world. The gospel actually breaks the power of sin in our life. The gospel purifies our hearts and produces within us a longing to be pure in the sight of God. So in verses 1 through 4, we have Christianity clearly summed up and spelled out for us. God, through Peter, gives us six truths regarding the biblical gospel. He causes us to reflect upon, once again, what true faith is and what true faith actually does in the life of a genuine Christian. Now, having articulated the nature of the Christian faith in verses 1 through 4, beginning in verse 5, Peter wants those to whom he is writing 
to understand that simply having faith in God is not the final objective. It's not the end goal of the gospel. In other words, what Peter is trying to teach us in verses 5 through 9 is that true faith in God ought to be worked out in our life. True faith in God ought to lead us to grow spiritually. True faith in God involves our personal labor and effort. Now, to be clear, we are not saved by works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. But the faith that saves by grace through faith ought to work. Don't cut off verse 10 from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. So on the one hand, Peter recognizes and rejoices in the fact that God in His grace has given His recipients like precious faith. Yet on the other hand, Peter is now exhorting those who have such faith to progress, to progress in their faith by purposely and diligently adding various Christ-like virtues to their faith. So let's look at this as Peter begins in verse number 5. Peter says, And beside this, or because you have faith, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye should neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Now, from these words, I want to give you three distinct truths that relate to the Christian's responsibility to grow in their faith. And the first truth I want us to recognize in verse 5 is the personal effort that must be given to grow in the Christian faith. Peter says, and beside this, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith. Translations, you have faith in God, great. Now cultivate it, work it out. Put it in action before God and men so that you might be a doer of God's word and not a hearer only. You have faith in Christ, praise the Lord. But you need to comprehend that faith without works is dead. Having received Christ, now you need to strive to live for Him. Being a possessor of faith, what God requires of you now is to actively seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Now under this first point, I want us to recognize two supplemental truths regarding the outworking of our faith. And the first truth that I want us to identify from Peter's words is the fact that spiritual growth requires purposeful activity on our part. Spiritual growth requires purposeful and personal activity on our part. Look at what he says. Peter says, giving. That's a labor word. That's a word of sacrifice. That's that four-letter W word. Work. Giving. All. Diligence. Add to your faith. Now notice what Peter does not say. He does not say giving some effort. He does not say giving a little bit of attention to 
He does not say casually and conveniently add to your faith if you want. Peter says giving all diligence add to your faith. And the idea that Peter is laying down before us is that the one who has come to faith in God through Christ will be purposeful in exercising their strength in running the race that has been set before them. And the analogy of the Christian being likened to an athlete running a race is used by Paul in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians 3, 13 and 14, Paul says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. No man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back as fit for the kingdom of God, forgetting those things which are behind, and catch it, reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press, I exert my energy and effort and strength toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And it's within that same text that Paul says, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. Paul is in a race and he is not content with lukewarm Christianity. I think I'll just walk it. Didn't we just touch on this a few weeks ago? I think I'll just casually jog it while I eat some popcorn and I wave at everybody in the concession stands. And I look back constantly to see that I'm doing much better than everybody else, so I'll just maintain this pace. Paul is on a mission to win, not so that he might glory in himself, but that he might know Christ. This is exactly what Peter is saying in 2 Peter 1. Do you want to grow in your faith? Do you want to advance in your knowledge of Christ? Do you want to become a Christian that God intends for you to be? Then listen, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ. You must, you must mortify the deeds of your flesh and vivify, put life into working out the fruit of the Spirit. You must deny ungodliness and worldly lusts so that you might live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. It's not going to happen without your involvement. It's not. Do you want to know Christ experientially? Do you want to understand His Word more deeply? Do you want to have victory over those sins that so easily beset you? If so, it's going to require your blood, sweat, and tears. It will. It's going to require sacrifice on your part. It's going to require that you die to your lame excuses. Listen now. What Peter is teaching us is this. Growing in your faith is not passive. It's active. Growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ does not happen automatically or by accident. It will only take place through our personal effort. And this makes sense. Just apply the same truth to every other area of life. Help me out. If you want to be an efficient athlete, what do you have to do? You have to practice. You have to put in the hours. You have to hit the weight room. You have to watch your diet. You have to exercise. You have to make conscious decisions to grow in those areas you need to grow in. Newsflash, Olympian athletes do not wake up one morning with the skill to become Olympian athletes. They train all year for one minute. If you want to become an accomplished musician... What do you have to do? Just purchase an instrument? No. You have to begin learning the simple notes. You have to put in the time to add one skill on top of another. You have to put in deliberate effort. 
If you want to have a farm, if you want to grow crops, if you want to raise livestock on that farm, what is involved? Sitting on a porch, sipping sweet tea? What is required of you? Here it is. Plain old hard work. If you're growing crops, you have to find a place to farm. You have to plow the fields. You have to fertilize. You have to plant the seeds. You have to water the seeds. You have to manage the weeds. You have to reap the crops. If you want to raise livestock, you have to wake up before sunrise. You have to feed the cows. You have to milk the cows. You have to clean the stalls. You have to collect the eggs from the chickens. You have to shear the sheep. You have to ride the horses. And you have to make sure all the animals are healthy. Now let's bring this closer to home, shall we? Marines, help me out. In order for you to be a United States Marine, in order for you to be all that you ought to be, what does it take? It takes diligence. It takes focus. It takes sacrifice. It takes practice. When training is taking place, the mindset must be, we are training for war. There are no excuses. There is no time for laziness. How many Marines were given a gun and say, all right, now you're good to go? No practice of shooting? No familiarity with this deadly machine that you're holding in your hands? Can you imagine? So it is with the spiritual war. In order for us to be the soldier of Christ that God has called us to be, it's going to require dedication. It's going to require constant examination, self-denial, effort, energy, making choices. And let me get back to it again for the millennial generation. It's going to require just plain hard work. What's the generation after the millennials? I don't even know. Generation Y? Z, X, Y, T, R, I don't know. We've lost that. We think that everything will just be served to us on a golden platter. I'm speaking to those under 40 now. Yeah? Work. Work. The Bible describes the Christian life as work. Labor. There's no room for laziness. There's no room for carelessness. It's not going to be easy. So get this truth etched at the forefront of your hearts. Christian growth requires purpose. It requires pain. It requires sacrifice. It requires eagerness. Spiritual growth requires purposeful activity on our part. Do you have that? Purposeful activity. The second supplemental truth that I want us to recognize from Peter's words is the truth that true faith does not exclusively rest in the heart and mind. True faith does not exclusively rest in the heart and mind. Therefore, true growth is more, catch it, true growth is more than just knowledge and feelings. Now, I say this because there are some people who think that just because they believe certain facts about God and Christ on a mere mental level, that such views make them Christian. There are many who claim to be a child of God because they went to college and studied religion. Therefore, they know the certain facts about the Bible, and they can argue these facts with you on an intellectual level. But that's as far as their faith goes. It only goes to their lips and their head. And likewise, there are many who attend Christian churches every week who suppose that their faith and their feelings are one and the same. When asked to many people who go to church every week, do you have faith in God? They say, oh yes. And when you respond, how do you know? The answer is, I just feel it. I just feel that I am one with God. I have this sense. I feel warm and fuzzy every time I go to church. Sometimes I cry. 
I have these jubilant experiences. And what I am proposing to you from Peter's words is that true faith in Christ will not merely rest in one's head, one's mouth, or one's heart. If someone has true faith in Christ, it will be lived out and seen through one's entire life. While faith does include the mind and the emotions, we see very plainly that it affects every part of the Christian. Trace it out with me. The Christian life is about striving to love God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Christian life is about thinking pure thoughts, having a humble attitude, exercising faith, understanding biblical doctrine with the mind, striving to have holy affections, and so forth. So we can't cut off one from the other. Well, I just like my Christian faith to be a faith of feelings. I don't want theology and doctrine. I just want the experience. But don't preach to me about believing a certain way. You have to have the whole thing. Don't divide Christ. Don't divide His Word. And this stands contrary to the strange notion that one can have a type of reserved intellectual faith that leads to nothing. And sadly, this is the faith that seems to be widely accepted in our nation at this present hour. Most people have no shame in saying, I have faith. I believe in God. I believe Jesus died on a cross. But my faith is a more private faith. My faith remains in my heart. My faith remains in my head. My faith is just between me and God. So don't you dare judge me. Because God and I are good. You do you and I'll do me. Peter is teaching us in our first point on Christian growth. Listen, that true faith transforms the whole life. And if it doesn't, it's fake faith. It's not the faith according to Christ. It's not a faith according to the Bible. True faith ought to be added to. If we've been born again, then we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So continuing in this theme, Peter goes on listing for us seven godly elements that the believer ought to strive to add to their faith. So in our first point, we have the personal effort that must be given to grow in the Christian faith. In our second point, verses 5 through 7, we have the specific elements that must be added to grow in the knowledge of Christ. Notice then, verse 5, And beside this, beside your faith, in addition to your faith, give all diligence to add to your faith Virtue. Virtue. What is virtue? Moral excellence. Moral power. Moral strength. Moral energy, which one author calls the vigor of the soul. If you are to grow as a Christian, Peter is saying you must have the courage to strive to live for God even if nobody else will. You must have the determination to profess your faith in Christ to the world when the world is calling on you to renounce your faith in Christ. This is virtue. Virtue is actually living for the purpose through which Christ saved you to glorify Him. This is foundational. If you want to grow in your faith, you must learn to have a backbone. You must say with Joshua, Despite what comes, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You must say with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even if everybody else bows to the whims of culture, we are going to live for God. Virtue. I've made my choice. I'm not turning back. Right? The world behind me, the cross before me, No turning back, no turning back. Virtue, moral excellency, moral strength, 
moral power. That's the element one. The first thing to be added to the faith is virtue. And to faith and virtue, we are to add knowledge. 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 True wisdom. Which is, Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now this cuts through the intellectual Pharisees' faith. Well, we know God because we are very familiar with the law of Moses. We have Abraham's seed, and I can tell you of this law and that law, and I could debate with you at Starbucks about this philosophical philosophical practice and that philosophical practice, and their faith just rests in their head. True knowledge, fear of God, reverential awe of who God is. So in addition to our faith, in addition to developing a backbone to do what God wants us to do, we need to grow in our understanding of who God is. We need to grow in our understanding of God's Word because it's God's Word that teaches us of who God is. And we need to grow in our understanding of God's will, what God will have us to do with our life. Where do we find that? In God's Word. How do we live day to day for God? By taking heed to His commandments. So we add to faith, we add to virtue, knowledge. And again, this is more than just a mental theological knowledge. This is a knowledge of Christ that is intimate. On a personal level, Christ, I delight to do your will. I see your will written in the Bible. That's what I want to do day by day. In everything we say and everything we do, adding to our faith knowledge. Is this what God wants me to do? I have a choice. Is this the best choice? Approve things that are excellent. That's the second element. The second thing to be added to our faith To our virtue is knowledge. And into faith, virtue, and knowledge, Peter then tells us we are to add temperance or self-control. And what Peter is saying is that in order for us to grow in the Lord, we need to be disciplined in every area of our life. If we are to grow in grace and knowledge, if we are to glorify God in our body and our spirit, if we are to run our race with perseverance, if we are going to fight the good fight of faith, we must exercise self-control regarding our lusts, our passions, our desires. We must be careful how we spend our time, what we do with our money, who we allow as our friends, what entertainments we set before our eyes, and how we act and react to the circumstances of life. Temperance. Self-control, what's the opposite? The opposite is a drunk. A drunk is not self-controlled. He's not timbrant. A drunk is one who stammers here and stammers there. Some Christians act like drunks. No backbone. No knowledge of what God would have them to do. So they're in and they're out of sin, in and out of Christian activity. In and out of public worship and God saying, sober up, be disciplined. Awake out of sleep. You're sleepwalking. In your sleep, you don't know. You're not pursuing virtue. You're in la-la land. So add to your faith self-control. Get a hold of yourself. Make goals. Make aspirations. Every part of your life. The third element that must be added to the faith is temperance. And then to temperance, we're to add patience, which can also be translated as perseverance. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 commands us to run our race with patience. That word is perseverance. That race that is set before us, giving all diligence to run the race with perseverance. And the idea is, in this world, the Christian will inevitably meet with various trials, hardships, and difficulties. Have you ever trained for a race? It's hard. you got to push yourself. You're going to feel your chest tightening up. There's going to be that little voice that says, just quit. Just give up. Slow down. 
So it is in the Christian life. There will be instances in which we feel like slowing down. We feel like giving up. And Peter is telling us here that quitting is not an option. We have to keep on keeping on to grow in our faith. If we are to grow in our faith, we must add patience, persevere, so we don't feel like living for God. Well, start preaching to yourself. You have to. Christ persevered for you so you can persevere for Him. And that He died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto Him which died and rose again. For me to live as Christ, He persevered. So we're not yet at our goal. We're not yet as our destination. If you slow down, guess what? You'll end up like Solomon. Not ending your race in a God-honoring way. Paul says, I've finished my course. I've given all perseverance. I've given all diligence to finish strong. So some of you in your 60s, 70s, 80s, you still have work to do. Now, it may not be the same work that you did 30, 40 years ago, but your race is not done. You still have to add to your faith. Your testimony is still being written. Your obituary is still being worked out. Don't ruin it. If we're going to grow in our faith, we must add patience. That's element number four. And then to patience, we are to add godliness. And this sums up everything. Godliness, carefulness in maintaining a relationship with God, living before His eyes. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good, so others may not see what goes on in my phone, but God knows. Somebody help us. Godliness, character, living for God when nobody's watching. Living for God in the dark. Godliness, piety toward God, loving God, fearing God, worshiping God, obeying God, godliness, add to your faith, godliness, purity. Without a pure heart, no man shall see the Lord. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You want to know God? You want to experience Him truly? Don't go to these phony, baloney, carnival concerts and churches that focus on emotions. Seek to live pure before Him. So we have virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, which relate to our attitude and our actions toward God. And then we have two more elements which relate to the believer's attitude towards others. This is the whole law summed up. The whole law is to love God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love others as ourselves. Notice it here. Peter says, adding to your faith brotherly kindness which refers to our relationship to our fellow Christians. Paul says that we are to do good to all men, yes, but especially them who are of the household of faith. So we add to our faith a living, breathing relationship with other believers. And by the way, this is why the local church is so important. It's the arena that God has established and ordained for us to add to our faith so we can see and love on the brethren. Well, I'm a Christian. I just don't align with the organized church. I just stay at home. You're shooting yourself in the foot. You are hindering yourself from growing in the faith. You see, church is not just about you getting. It's about you giving. Jesus Christ didn't come to be ministered unto, but to minister and give himself a ransom for others. How can you practice the one another's if you stay away all the time? You can't. So Peter says you need to add to your faith brotherly kindness. And then we are to add to brotherly kindness charity. Charity. Without charity, we're nothing. Charity is the preeminent gift given by God. So you claim to speak in tongues. So you claim to prophesy. So what? If you have charity, you are nothing. Charity. Loving those who are Christian and those who are not. Showing the love of Christ so that the world might know something of Christ. Charity. Add to your faith. Charity. Deny yourself, love others sacrificially, selflessly. Empty yourself like Christ did in love. 
not because they deserve it, but because you long to see their soul saved. Add to your faith charity. Don't develop the spirit of James and John that says, I don't care if the world goes to hell in a handbasket. That's not charity. No, charity is like Isaiah or Jeremiah saying, mine eyes affect my heart. Charity is Christ looking over the multitudes, seeing the sheep, seeing the people as sheep without a shepherd, being moved for them. These are the seven virtues that ought to be added to one's faith. These are the virtues that ought to be worked out on a daily basis. And what I want you to notice about this list is that they are Christ-like virtues. Don't miss this. What Peter lists for us are features that are found in the person of Christ. These are not just moral excellencies. These are features that permeate through Christ. As we study the person, life, and ministry of Christ, we find that Jesus is a man of moral excellence. He lived according to God's plan. Jesus was a man of knowledge. He knew the scriptures. He had an intimate relationship with God. Jesus was a man of temperance and self-control. He was a man of perseverance. He was a man, obviously, of godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. So what Peter is saying is essentially this. Here it is. As you, therefore, have received the Lord Jesus Christ, so walk in Him. Mimic Him. Lived as he lived. Be a representative of your Savior to the world. Let your light so shine. For what purpose? So that they might see your, here it is, good works. Not so that they might boast in you. That they might see your good works so that they might glorify God which is in heaven. So that through your good works they might be drawn to the compassion of God in Christ. And finally, we come to the third part of Peter's message on Christian growth. In verses 8 and 9, which I've entitled, The Evidence That Demonstrates Whether You Have True Faith in God or Not. So having listed the seven elements that are to be added to our faith, our professed faith, Peter says, notice it, if, if these things be in you and abound, They make you that ye should neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This draws me back to Psalm 1. Think of fruitfulness as a tree planted by the rivers of water. And then think of the alternative. Peter goes on and says, but, so there's an if and there's a but. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Did you see the contrast? Did you catch Peter's condition and result? He begins by saying, if not since. Teaching us then that he is not assuming or asserting that all among the congregation who claim the name of Christ are actually Christian. Peter says very carefully, if these seven elements are the desire of your heart, if these seven attributes are found in the outworking of your life, then it will prove that you are a tree planted by the rivers of water that is bringing forth its fruit in its season. You will neither be spiritually barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ. But, on the other hand, Flip the coin over. Verse 9. If you lack these qualities that I have just listed that are found in Christ, you are blind and cannot see afar off, though you profess to be purged from your sins. In time you will come to forget what the gospel is all about. You will disregard the purpose for which Christ came. The meaning of Peter's words here are very simple. He's drawing a distinction. He is setting the true believer against the false believer, as he's been doing since verse number one. He is setting the authentic Christian against the apostate. 
He is saying, if you have true faith in Christ, but you do not grow, then do not flatter yourself to be a Christian. Because, James says, faith without works is dead, lifeless, non-existence. So let's boil this down. Faith that doesn't lead to virtue, knowledge, temperance, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity is not a living faith. It's not a faith that's rooted in Christ. Either you are a good tree producing good fruit or you are a corrupt tree producing evil fruit. Either your life is producing the fruit of the Spirit or it is producing the works of the flesh. This is what Peter is saying. Where did he get his theology? He got it from Christ himself. Peter is dividing the professors of faith against the possessors of faith. He is separating the religious from the regenerate. He's separating the tares among the wheat, those who merely hear God's word and those who actually hear and obey God's word. Trace it out. He is saying, if you have no desire to live for Christ, if you have no intention to grow in Him, it doesn't matter what you profess with your lips, you don't know Christ. You can go to church every Sunday till you die. But if these things aren't actually being worked out and added to, you are lost. And then if on the other hand, Christ is in you, Peter is saying you will grow. You will add to your faith because it is the fruit of the regenerate heart. This is James 2. If you say you have faith, but God has not continued His work of sanctification in your life, you are deceived. 1 John. If a man say, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. If a man say, I love God, but loves the world and the things of this world, his heart has not been detached from the sinful pleasures of this life, he doesn't have faith. Remember what I said last week? Your profession of faith means nothing. Philippians chapter 1. He who has begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that hath called you who also will do it. The emphasis is not on you doing it. Faithful is he who hath called you who also will do it. Don't miss the point. A true Christian will add to their faith these Christ-like characteristics, not through their power and strength, but through the Spirit of God that dwells within them. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for... It is God which works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Paul's message is one and the same with Peter's. It's one and the same with John's. It's one and the same with Jesus. You have profession of faith in God. Great. Now work it out. Put it into practice. And as you put it into practice, it will be God working in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Do you see the balance? And do you see the focus on God? God doesn't save and then abandon His children. 1 Peter chapter 1, we caught that, remember? God keeps those that He converts. You're kept by the power of God, that same power that converted you. God sanctifies those who He saves. God consecrates those He calls God gives the power to receive the gospel and He also gives the power to live for Christ. So the question that needs to be asked in a church service like ours this morning is not, do you believe yourself to be saved? That's subjective. That's based upon your own opinion. The question is, here it is. The question is, you need to ask to yourself, what do the actions of your life show to be true? The Pharisees thought themselves to be saved. 
the actions of their life didn't prove it. That's why John the Baptist steps on the scenes and says, don't you declare Abraham as your father. Bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. Don't say it, show it. Do you show that you're a true Christian or counterfeit Christian? Since the time of your professed faith in Christ, listen, ask yourself this. Since the time you profess true faith in Christ, can others recognize that you're a different person? Can others see that you're growing in Christ? Not perfectly, but perseveringly. Are these Christ-like virtues that Peter has spelled out being worked out in your life? That's the question. Listen, the question is not, do you pray? The question is not, do you go to church? The question is not, do you have positive thoughts about God? The question is not, do you give to the offering? The question is not, do you want to go to heaven when you die? That's not the question. The question is, has God, by His grace and power, given you true faith? Since the time of your supposed conversion, are you growing in your understanding of Christ? Is He becoming more and more precious to you? Can you look back at the totality of your life and see God purging you from sin? Or is your faith just a Sunday morning faith? You just put on and put off as you walk through the doors. Many will say unto me, Lord, Lord, have we not professed faith in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Why? Because they're workers of iniquity, not workers of holiness, not workers of godliness. This is the test you must honestly apply to your soul this morning. The question you need to ask is, do I have faith? Where does my faith rest? Where does my faith lead to? Is my faith just a bunch of rules and regulations? Or is it a union with Christ? Something that I delight to commune with Him. Truth be told, I'm still persuaded that some who come to church here every week, who claim to see, are still blind. I'm still persuaded that there are some who profess to know God with their lips, who lack these Christian virtues that Peter lists. And I don't say this to condemn you but to encourage you to examine yourselves, to see if you're in the faith so that it might lead you to seek the Lord while He may be found. You, you don't want to be wrong with this issue. Of all things to be wrong about in life, you don't want to be wrong about your soul. If you die without Christ, you will die in your sin and it will be forever in hell. Most preachers won't tell you that, but I'm going to tell you the truth. Forever in hell, no escape, no indulgences, no purgatory. It's over, forever, forever. Are you willing to wage your profession of faith on that? I'm saying this to help you. Some of you who flatter yourselves that you know God, but your life shows God's not really there. Your faith is more of a tradition than it is a relationship. Examine yourself. Christ in His love has done everything possible for you to be right with Him. It's faith. It comes by grace. It's to be received. It's according to Christ. It's not you. It's not about turning over a new leaf. It's not about you trying to do better. That's not salvation. You are not good. Christ is good. And only Christ has the power to forgive you of your sin. And He will forgive you of your sin if you turn to Him now in contrition and faith, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He will. Those who go to Christ, He will in no wise cast out. So if you're here this morning, unsure if you're saved, and God has caused you to see from this text that your faith is growing, and you are persevering in your love for Christ, listen, then take great encouragement in the fact that God has called you to Himself. There are some people who are just so troubled with doubts and worries 
and they're looking too much at themselves. Am I good enough to be accepted by God? It's not your goodness. It's not your goodness that keeps. It's Christ's power and goodness. You see, so we go to the text when Satan causes us to fear and doubt. We examine ourselves by this and we say, is this something that God is doing within me? Oh, this is not me. This is all of God. If so, take encouragement that this is the assurance of faith. I can look back at the time and see from that profession that it's God who has brought me out. It's God who's developed these things in me. It's God who's given me the desire. That's where the assurance come from, from God's word.